The Drowned Children You see, they have no judgment, so it is natural that they should drown, first the ice taking them in, and then all winter their wool scarves floating behind them as they sink, until at last they are quiet, and the pond lifts them in its manifold dark arms. But death must come to them differently so close to the beginning, as though they had always been blind and weightless. Therefore, the rest is dreamed, the lamp, the good white cloth that covered the table, their bodies. And yet they hear the names they used like lures slipping over the pond. What are you waiting for? Come home, come home, lost in the waters, blue and permanent. Vespers. In your extended absence, you permit me use of earth, anticipating some return on investment. I must report failure in my assignment, principally regarding the tomato plants. I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes. Or if I am, you should withhold the heavy rains, the cold nights that come so often here, while other regions get 12 weeks of summer. All this belongs to you. On the other hand, I planted the seeds. I watched the first shoots like wings tearing the soil, and it was my heart broken by the blight, the black spots so quickly multiplying in the rose. I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term. You who do not discriminate between the dead and the living, who are, in consequence, immune to foreshadowing, you may not know how much terror we bear, the spotted leaf, the red leaves of the maple falling, even in August, in early darkness. I am responsible for these vines. Vita Nova, you saved me. You should remember me. The spring of the year, young men buying tickets for the ferry boats. Laughter, because the air is full of apple blossoms. When I woke up, I realized I was capable of the same feeling. I remember sounds like that from my childhood. Laughter for no cause, simply because the world is beautiful. Something like that. Lugano, tables under the apple trees, deckhands raising and lowering the colored flags, and by the lake's edge, a young man throws his hat into the water. Perhaps his sweetheart has accepted him. Crucial. Sounds or gestures like a track laid down before the larger themes, and then unused, buried. Islands in the distance. My mother holding out a plate of little cakes. As far as I remember, changed in no detail. The moment vivid, intact, having never been exposed to light, so that I woke, elated, at my age, hungry for life, utterly confident. By the tables, patches of new grass, the pale green pieced into the dark existing ground. Surely spring has been returned to me, this time not as a lover, but as a messenger of death. Yet it is still spring. It is still meant tenderly. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same And welcome to episode 317 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. Joining me today is David Grubbs, who is a assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how's it going? Pretty good. All's well. Also joining us as Nathan Gilmore continues his year-long absence from this podcast is Matthew Block, who uh, lives in Swan River, Manitoba. How's it going, Matthew? Mm -hmm. Good, good. 
Well, uh, our topic for today is the three poems you just heard us read by Louise Gluck, who just won the Nobel Prize. I guess not just one, but she's the most recent Nobel Prize in Literature winner, and we try to do uh, episodes based on those, although we didn't do them last year, and we have skipped other years. This one was easy because a lot of her poems are available online. And also, um, at least one of us was familiar with her beforehand. But before we get into these poems, what's new on the network? <laughs> David Blackers. Again, we are taunted by the blink, the bleak emptiness of a calendar. Yes, there was absolutely nothing on the calendar, including this show. So I, can't, I guess I can't complain too much. So what else is new on the network? I guess you'll just have to subscribe to our other shows and listen for yourself. All right. <laughs> David, you mentioned last week that you used to teach Gluck's poetry until you changed anthologies. So who is Louise Gluck, and what does she do as a poet that appealed to you enough to teach her poems but not enough to photocopy them? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so what happened between jobs, um, teaching teaching the same class, Comp, comp 2, um, I shifted from from teaching... Uh, using the Prentice Hall Literature Portfolio in Composition 2, which is uh, the textbook uh, that we were assigned way back teaching as teaching assistants at the University of Georgia. And then now in class, I use uh, the Norton Introduction to Literature text. And back then, I had a unit on dramatic monologues, which happens to be one of the things that Louise Gluck does well. It's one of the... Uh, one of the pretty uh, sort of standard things that's said about her work is the way that she li that she develops character through these um, very kind of emotionally exposed, plain spoken, yet weirdly imagistic and dreamlike monologues. And so I had a dramatic monologue unit, and her her uh, her poetry in that particular anthology was. Uh, my, was used for that purpose. Now I don't have a dramatic monologue unit, so um, it's not that I don't like her enough not to photocopy her, but that I, I just do very different things in that class now. Uh, so speaking of the Prentice Hall Literature Portfolio, um, it had an introduction, and so I figured in you know as as a kind of salute to how I learned about Louise Gluck. Uh, I, I would read some of its introduction to her. Uh, Louise Gluck, born 1943, uh, was born in New York City, grew up on Long Island. She had a privileged family education, became familiar with classical mythology by the age of three, and studied at Sarah Lawrence College and then Columbia University. Uh, Gluck has won many prizes for her poetry, including the Pulitzer Prize and the Poetry Society of America's Williams Car William Carlos Williams Award uh, and then it cites several others. Um, she has served as U.S. Poet Laureate Consultant in Poetry at the, Nash at the Library of Congress, and now we get to add Nobel Prize. So that particular bio was, was my introduction to her. And that was uh, one of the things that first attracted me um, to her poetry in this little anthology. I'm mainly a medievalist, certainly do I scarcely venture beyond the first half of the 17th century in terms of um, my, my own, my own reading and teaching outside of this particular class, um, a composition to that's taught as an introduction to literature. And so my exposure to more recent poets has, has largely come through that filter, but she happens to write uh, a poem in, that's collected in the anthology called Circe's power and I knew who Circe was because I had read the Odyssey. And then when I learned about her as one who uses mythology commonly as a touchstone, I, I, I wanted to learn more. So particularly her, uh, her collection from 1996, The Meadowlands, which is kind of an extended poetic treatment through, you know, through many poems of characters and situations from the Odyssey, but then using those uh, those myths, those characters and situations, uh, in order to meditate on strained relationships and, uh, well, 
things that that are very uh, that I, th- I think are pretty easy to connect to the content of the Odyssey. So that was what really what attracted me to her the the strong vo- voice in her poems, um, strong images, uh, language that is artful without being baroque. Um, but also there's kind of a weird sort of a, a dreaminess to it. Um, uh, one, one bio sketch that I was reading, uh, alluded to uh, a critic who, who, ta- who described her as if she was speaking from a tripod, like the Delphic Oracle. And I get that. <laughs> um, and I love the mythology, so those, those are the things that really attracted me to her work. But I know I'm, I'm certainly leaving stuff out because, you know, my my route into modern poetry is always through that weird back door of a composition classroom. What else should I be talking about? Well, I should point out, David, you probably know modern poetry about as well as I do because I studied contemporary or you know post-war fiction and and didn't really do that much with poetry after 1950. So um, I, I am am not terribly familiar with Gluck. Uh, I had heard of her. I'd probably read a thing or two, but it, this is not someone whom with whom I've spent a great deal of time. What about you, Matthew? Do you do you have any history with Louise Gluck? <laughs> no, not really. I uh, I haven't paid a lot of attention to poetry from the last century at all. Um, and uh, yeah, so I. I I was coming to her fairly fresh today. I had not read uh, Glick's poetry before. I picked the poems I picked, I should say, because they are some of the ones that are represented in the Norton Anthology of American Literature. So Drowned Children and Vespers are both in there. And as I read read around about her, I decided I liked Vita Nova as well. So if you're wondering why I picked the three, especially since none of them are dramatic monologues, um, at least not in the not in the traditional sense of that uh, of that label. Um, that's why I, uh, these are the ones they had that weren't incredibly long or excerpted. And then I also liked Vita Nova. So um, none of us are really experts on Gluck, is what I'm what I'm saying to our listeners. So if if we sound like we don't know what we're talking about, it might well be because we don't know what we're talking about. Even for me, down to the uncertainty that I feel every time I say her last name and I'm not certain what to do with that U-M-Umlaut. Yes, I, I looked up a video <laughs> online of a bunch of people introducing her name, and they all said Gluck. So I say Gluck. Victoria tells me that is not how that name is pronounced in German. But I'll say what I always say, which is, I don't care what the Germans do. Hey. <laughs> Wait a second here. <laughs> um for what it's worth, I, I some of the videos I was looking at was suggesting it was Glick, so oh. I don't know. Well, maybe I, I've got whatever it wrong. I say, well, just I was just going to say, forgive me, because I could be totally off to, to lunch here. Well, and Victoria's <laughs> German pronunciation of it was a sound we don't have in English, I think. So I, I, I'm not even going to try. Glick is what I'm going to say, and if I'm wrong, I apologize to Louise Glick, Glock, Gluck. I'm sure she's tired of people mispronouncing her last name. Um, as as which I can relate to, given the spelling of my first name. So I'm I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to her. Well, um, one thing that I notice about the poems we read is that she's really really good at opening lines, and especially she's good at immediately introducing her authorial voice in those opening lines. Our listeners have heard us read the poems, so feel free to jump around a bit. Uh, Matthew, how do the opening words of the Drowned Children, Vespers, and Vita Nova prepare us for the poems that follow them? Yeah, and so um, the way I kind of was thinking about this is is talking about each poem separately. So if you want to interrupt me, feel free. Um, So the first line, of course, the Drowned Children is, you see they have no judgment. And this is a poem, as we've already heard, about a group of children who slip through the weak ice on a pond and drown. We would normally, I think, expect a poem of this kind to be emotional. Uh, but the opening line of this poem, poem provides us a frame which is entirely different. It's this cold, detached logic. Children aren't smart, so of course they're more likely to break through the ice and drown. And it's precisely this contrast, I think, between what the situation demands and what the poet is saying that highlights the horror of the situation. We expect tears, and instead we're getting a shrug. 
we want sort of some expression of humanity and instead we're getting this laughable mr spock kind of logic <laughs> and and besides there's there's not really that long a gap between their birth and death the poet says you know this movement from this one blind and weightless environment uh, that is the womb uh, to another, the pond. So not only have these children not really been alive long enough to form good judgment, they've not really been alive long enough to matter in that sense. So they won't feel the loss themselves. And again, it's this kind of brutal assessment of the situation that really builds the the sense of of horror that the reader experiences. Um, and I think that horror leads us to an irony when we look at the poem's opening words again. You see, they have no judgment. Uh, the reader will respond to the poet with the same words. If, if this is how you're reacting when children die tragically, then it's you who have no judgment. In fact, the poet kind of invites this response from us. Her first words are addressed uh, to the reader. You see, she says. So she's presenting the situation to us, inviting us to respond. And the reader does with, with growing horror, as I say. In my approach kind of to answering how these first lines uh, frame the poems, I'm trying not to anticipate too much some of the conversation we'll be having later in this episode. Sure. That's kind of where I'm going to stop with that one. Is there anything else about the drowned children you'd want to pull out there? It reminds me a little bit of the ending of uh, John Updike's Rabbit Run, which I'm going to spoil now. So if you don't want the ending of Rabbit Run spoiled, hit that <laughs> hit that forward 30 second skip on your uh, on your on your podcast player. It doesn't seem to be working for me. I'm, I'm oh, sorry. My... Well, I'm I'm sorry to spoil it for you. <laughs> take your headphones off for a second. Um, he he abandons his wife and newborn daughter, and his wife gets drunk and drowns the baby, and he he comes back because of it. And then at the funeral. Uh, everybody's kind of commiserating and he says don't look at me i didn't kill her which is technically true but also you know a, a kind of horrible thing to say and and that's the kind of authorial voice i get from the opening line of the drowned children you see they have no judgment it's like somebody desperately trying to explain to explain explain themselves uh, when there is no satisfactory explanation for whatever it is she said that has preceded this um, this poem. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, the poem moves on from there and becomes very, very lyrical and philosophical. So it starts off with this kind of brutal pragmatism, but it ends up with something altogether different. It's like this almost platonic meditation on the existence of the soul before death and or before birth, excuse mm-hmm. me, and after death. I, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating poem, but it, it begins very uh, humorously, I think. Graves, what would you say? Yeah, oh yeah, it's it's definitely a, a rug yank, um, which is which is one of the things that, you know, she, she does that in, in some other poems as well. But I, I, I'm not a poet, um, but... There have definitely been times when a first line, an opening line, a first sentence um, sort of rose and smacked me in the face and demanded that something be written just so that opening could happen. Um, And there's some there's a a, I don't know. I, I don't know what the experience is like for her writing those first lines, but something between, you know, something between a labor and an inspiration um, there's just it's it's just amazing. She, she, you just get hooked right away. We cut you off, Matthew. What, what about the, what do you have to say about the other two poems? Sure. Uh, let's look at Vespers. So I think on the surface, Vespers is is a obviously a fairly different poem than the, than the Drowned Children. We're talking about someone attempting and apparently failing to grow these tomatoes. But the opening line, uh, in your extended absence, you permit me use of earth, anticipating some return on investment. Um, this opening line leads us to understand that there's more going on here than, than mere gardening. Or rather, I might say that it helps us to understand that gardening isn't something that should be considered mere in the first place. So the, the addressee of the poem uh, here is not the reader, but rather someone or something divine, a creator, um, whether that's meant as a secular mother nature or a personal God is not entirely c- clear, at least at the very beginning of the poem. So we're kind of listening in on a conversation that wasn't meant for our ears. It's a prayer of sorts. 
What's more, I think the, the poet depicts herself here almost like a tenant or a serf responding to the lord of the land. And so we recognize that there's going to be an, an inequality in status that'll come to the fore as the poem progresses. And just like a serf facing a hard year might complain to the Lord that they weren't there, that they don't know the challenges. So too, the poet is painting her recipient as something of an absentee landlord. His is an extended absence. He's not involved in the day-to-day -day running of things, but he'll nevertheless require an accounting of the tenant. And I hope I'm not anticipating things too much here to say that there are overtones of one of the parables of Jesus where the servant protests to his Lord saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. But in any event, this, this, defense in it, this defensiveness, this laying blame to the landlord out of the gate prepares us for the poet's confession of failure in her assignment. If she has been called to work the earth, then her dying tomato crop is proof of her failure. But whose fault is it really? And why does growing tomatoes matter in the big scheme? I'll refrain from digging into that here, because I, as I say, I think we're going to get into some of those questions as the conversation unfolds. Here, here too, I appreciate the the humor of that opening line. It's it's very stilted. It it sounds like it sounds like somebody dictating to a lawyer or something, and then it, <laughs> it gets funnier in a different register as the poem continues. Um, so, so whereas the drowned children starts with this appalling uh, sentence, this starts this starts with a very formal sentence, and then you know the the ironies multiply as we go through the poem. Yeah. Um, well, then, if we if we turn to Vitanova, the first line there is, "You saved me. You should remember me." And uh, right from this beginning statement, we get a clue, I think, as to the structure of this poem. It's got two basic focuses, uh, the past when the poet was saved and the present when the poet feels forgotten. As we progress through the poem, then we, we see this focus on past events, this, this spring of many years ago in which the poet awakened to the joy of the world, to laughter for no cause, she writes, simply because the world is beautiful. And this past event would become a grounding idea that she believed would, would guide her into the future. But the second aspect of the poem, the present, demonstrates how that guiding joy has let her down. The poet has this sense of having been forgotten, of having been betrayed or abandoned. And yet the poet herself is not forgotten. No, she remembers throughout, um, throughout the poem uh, are all of these flashes of her remembrances of, of that spring day long ago. As far as I remember, she says, the memory is true, it's, it's changed to no detail, vivid, intact. She remembers, it seems, even if the you whom she's addressing does not. And, and who is this you? Uh, you saved me, the poet calls, you should remember me. Um, the first line is, is really the only time in the poem that the poet directly addresses the recipient, um, assuming that this you is kind of the, this long ago spring, uh, this, this experience and expectation of continued joy of life then the relationship ultimately fails. Um, it was once a you, a lover who could be addressed in the second person, but by the last stanza, it has become too distant. Spring returns to her now only in the third person, not as a lover, but as a messenger of death. Um, just some ways, I think, in which that, that opening line frames our interpretation of the poem that follows. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I, um, I I love that opening line because it seems so disconnected from the rest of the poem. The, the rest of the poem, I won't call it straightforward, but the rest of the poem all fits together. And that line, you have to you have to do a little bit of dancing to get it to to fit in with the rest of it. And I, I like that about it. But it is it is certainly of a different tenor than the other two opening lines we've looked at without without me saying it's not a great opening line because it is. You saved me, you should remember me, is the keynote for the whole thing. And yet, because it's so disconnected from everything else, it, it drapes the poem in more ambiguity than it might otherwise have. Mm -hmm. You're waiting to, to, to discover what could arouse um, that feeling of, of betrayed connection. 
mm-hmm. perhaps that that first line conveys what what could it be that has that has led someone to say that um yeah and where does it show up in the poem uh, yeah it's a, it's a, it's a tough one nothing i've ever read about her uh suggests that she has really meaningful religious faith i don't i don't want to word that in such a way that it sounds like an insult um but i i believe she was raised jewish but i i didn't read anything that suggests that she's practicing today but all three of the poems we're talking about today deal with more or less religious topics uh, or at least with what we might call ultimate topics how does gluck approach these weighty matters david sure so the Drowned Children is very clearly in the face of death and also has this um, consideration of of the existence of a soul both before and after and what that existence would be like, right? So it's it's not merely death from the perspective of the living as the you know the removal or separation. Um, from one who is loved, it's a consideration of death from the other side of it by the one who's experienced it. All right, so so that would be, you know, that's that's certainly considered usually the domain of religion um, and ultimate topics, as you as you phrase it. Uh, the Vespers poem has, I think, an implicit implicitly religious title which we can unpack. Uh, and then also what you've, what you mentioned, Matthew, um, I think, I think a pretty clear allusion uh, to uh, also to the, the parable. Um, uh, well, first of, of the, the bar- the, the master with the servants, uh, what's often called the, the, the parable of the talents in which the master goes abroad and, um, and the servant who is unable to get a return on that initial investment um, is is judged for it. But also maybe a little bit of uh, the parable of uh, the parable of the vineyard, in which you've got the, the agricultural workers going into going into the vineyard to labor. Um, but then. Uh, sundown comes and they have to come to report for their labor to get their wages. Um, it reminds me a bit of Milton's poem um, that also meditates on that same parable. Um, uh, when I consider how my light is spent uh, and that idea that with the, with the coming of the dark, um, you must report to the landlord. Um, and th- and that, that kind of giving an account for deeds done in the body, that kind of larger um, theme that's suggested by um, some of the language that she's using here, um, and I also I think suggested by the the, the reference, um, the, the the more indirect reference in the title Vespers. That is also a religious reference. Um, Vespers um, is uh, well, it's part of the the canonical hours um that's is that that's that's the the last the the prayers that um going towards sundown correctly yes it's the the penultimate prayers of the day Mm -hmm. yeah and so that idea of you know the day is done what have i done with my day is uh is the idea that's uh, i think implicit there and then vita nova um Less explicitly religious, except in the sense that it's it's a reminder of death, um, of the coming of death, uh, but also of the way that beauty awakens us to life. Um, but those awakenings are themselves always in the face of death, um, which you know again is is taking a, a very kind of ordinary experience, but then framing it in terms of the ultimate. And to answer the question, how does she approach it? I think I think that's that's sort of the common idea, um, which in some sense, in some ways, she speaks very directly, but also parabolically, uh, like in a parable, 
or in a parabola, right? She's sort of coming at things from this sort of curved and sideways kind of direction, looping back around at it, um, direct and indirect. Time and eternity, transcendence, absolute existence, um, timelessness, those are things that she deals with, but almost um, almost by a kind of negation. Um, she'll describe with kind of the, these, you know, very, very kind of vivid details, you know, apple blossoms and uh, deckhands raising colored flags or um, the wool scarves floating behind the children as they sink. And then she'll she'll sort of imagine it away. Um, this is from the drowned children. Death must come to them differently, so close to the beginning, as though they had always been blind and weightless. Um, the way that she speaks of that that thing that is beyond the time bound um, and sensory that we know, the immediate particular that we know, um, is accessed by by negation, transcendence by negation. Um, and that, that seems to be something that she's also talking about in Vespers, um, where the very particular relationship that she had with her failed tomatoes um, is set against the way uh, the one she speaks to, um, her, her auditor who is uh, who does not have a heart in our understanding of the term, who does not discriminate between the dead and the living, and who is in consequence immune to foreshadowing. Um, again, it's this transcendence as the thing that lacks the particularity of all of our experience. She seems to be very um, uh, committed to, invested in, um, sure about the value of that very particular experience in the face of that ultimate. But the ultimate is still there looming over it. So, you know, what, what will it, what does that transcendent, what does that beyond ultimate thing mean? If it also means losing the beauties of the particular, um, or or being unable to experience the beauties of the particular it's yeah it's 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 very interesting um, to see the way that she wants to value the one without denying the other and the other looms over it in a kind of ominous way at least that's 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 how I'm seeing it I said as if I were an undergraduate who just wants to follow up everything that he's done with the that's just my opinion I don't know if this is right but <laughs> Matthew what would you Still. add to that yeah I mean I think of, of the three poems as David said I mean Vespers is really the the most explicitly about religion and, and faith um, it's interesting I think because there are these um, callbacks to the parables of Jesus's as you uh, expanded for us and explained for us. But um, what's fascinating then is, is kind of the the accusation she makes towards the creator mm -hmm. where she says, I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of the term, um, which is fascinating because Jesus, the story of Jesus is, is meant to be one of incarnation, God becoming man, God uh, entering this world and having a heart quite literally and bodily. Yeah. So he hungers, he weeps for a dead friend, he suffers, he dies. And I think there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn between her sorrow over over the blight that's affecting her tomatoes, um, which is which has infected her good creation, if you want to put it that way, her good garden. And the sin, the blight which which arises in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Um, there, there's just some very interesting parallels that are going on here that I think are, are well, just fascinating. I love the Jewishness of Vespers, despite the references to Jesus, despite the, the Christian title. It, it seems very Abrahamic to me. Um, she goes to God 
and she acts like she's criticizing herself, but really she's criticizing him. And there's a, there's a very, uh, if you find five righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, will you, will you spare it? You know, there's, there's, there's a kind of, um, indirect bargaining quality to that poem that I find really, really appealing and that I would connect. Um, I would connect to a, a certain species of 20th century Judaism. It's not exactly a poem about faith, but it's not not a poem about faith either, you know? Yeah. Is it uh is it in any sense accurate to call her a religious poet? Well, you're going to have to define what you mean by that first, I guess. <laughs> I I was thinking about the answer to this question and I thought, well, I it's hard to think of a poet who I wouldn't call a religious poet other than maybe somebody like Dorothy Parker who's just writing kind of sharp, light mm-hmm. verse. Um, I mean, it, to to deal with the ultimate, which all poetry does to one degree or another, I think is to be a religious poet. So I, I, it, it's kind of a trick question. Yeah. As one who writes about those things in a way that does not dismiss the notion of something, someone beyond our temporal and sensory immediate experience. Um, there is, there is a space for that reality. That is, um, the topic of religions. Um, but the, the perspective that she takes on it is one that doesn't want to lose the immediate and the temporal and the particular in in it in 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 that larger immensity. Yeah, that it wants to cloud sense. a little space for the dead tomatoes. Or the apple blossoms at Lake Lugano, you know. Yeah. We haven't mentioned Vita Nova, how close that is to Vita Nuova, um, Dante's yeah. set of poems about Beatrice. So there's a, there's a religious valence to that as well. And the fact that she mm-hmm. says it in Latin instead of Italian, I don't know. For a Roman Catholic, it feels like a religious valence. Maybe maybe she doesn't mean it that way. Mm-hmm. And I mean even just the, the meaning of the phrase, new life. Right. You can't hear concepts of resurrection in, in that phrase. And, she, and, and it's new life that leads to death. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking in broad overviews so far, but I want to park on one image or phrase from each of our three poems and see what they reveal or what we can make them reveal. Um, the lines I have in mind from the Drowned Children are the beginning of the last stanza, and yet they hear the names they used like lures slipping over the pond. Matthew, what poetic labor do those lines perform for us? Yeah, the the words at the beginning of this line, and yet, are really cueing us, I think, to expect the the Turner Volta in this poem. Up to this point, the poet has approached the drowning of the titular children with this seemingly heartless sense of detachment or or um, self excuse, um, which has only really deepened the reader's sense of horror at the situation. But the poet doesn't retain this sense of detachment through to the end. The poet has described these children um, already in the poem as quieted in the dark arms of the pond. He's descri- or she's described them as blind and weightless. Uh, but though they might be blind and quiet, it appears they are not deaf. Uh, they still hear the voices of the grieving, are tantalized by them, are called to their names as if a fish to bait. But if they hear, if they can be baited by the sound of their own names still, if they still retain this ghost of, of life even now, uh, then their deaths can't be so insignificant and uh, unimportant as the poet has tried to say. What are you waiting for? Come home, come home, the voices cry immediately after this. There's this expression of sorrow, finally, that we've been de- denied since the beginning of the poem. But there's no hope that the children will come home. They hear their names being called, but the poem gives us no clue as to the identity of those calling. Are they mothers and fathers, friends, even rescue searchers? The poet doesn't say, 
the children are separated from them by too great a distance. They're, they've lost some of their personality. They become fish. Um, they're lost in the waters, blue and permanent. I think this deepens the reader's sense of loss. We've seen that the indifferent attitude exemplified uh, in the first two stanzas is, is ultimately incapable of, of truly diminishing the tragedy that's occurred. The, the drowned children can hear, but they can't return home. I don't think we should be surprised to see this turn in the poem either. I think the first two stanzas proclaim indifference, but all along there are clues that the poet understands the gravity of the situation, especially that that long meditation on their slow descent into the depths, their scarves trailing behind them in this this extended description. It really belies the indifference which the poet is proclaiming. We don't meditate on that to which we are indifferent. We don't attempt to diminish grief unless we understand that there is real grief there. And so this volta, this change partway through the poem, I don't think is surprising, even though it's it's uh, necessary. I'm also fascinated by the final sentence of Vespers. I am responsible for these vines. It's a wonderful turn at the end of a poem that already twists like tomato plants up the stake. What is she up to? Oh, man. I'm responsible for these vines is uh, you, it's, a, it's a great twist ending in the sense that up till this point, um, the, the speaker has been um, engaging in what we might otherwise see as a kind of self-justification. Um, the tomatoes failed. <laughs> the tomatoes, uh, the, I must report failure in my assignment principally regarding the tomato plants. And then comes a whole litany of reasons why the tomatoes failed that are not the speaker's fault. Um, I shouldn't be encouraged to grow tomatoes. This should never should have been even been the assignment. Um, rain was withheld. Uh, cold nights uh were 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 laid upon her, uh the speaker um there was blight um so all of these are the reasons why uh the tomato failed and it's not it's not the it's not the speaker's fault but at the end i am responsible for these vines is uh it's, it's as if that responsibility is taken up again, even in spite of the failure, not, not though to, I, I don't know, hold oneself accountable, but rather to put in contrast um, the way that that failure hurts the speaker in a way that the speaker doesn't believe it, it hurts the, the, the one who is listening, the auditor. Um, so uh, what is the auditor responsible for? Right. Uh, the responsible, uh, the, the auditor assigns tasks. The, uh, the auditor um, assigns the youths, uh, the use of earth and holds those who use it accountable, sends rains, sends cold nights on all the regions. Um, Send summer to some and, and cold to others. Um, all of this belongs to you, the speaker says right in the middle of the poem. Um, you do not discriminate between the dead and the living. Um, the dead and the living are both the responsibility of the auditor. Uh, and so the, the particularity of that loss of those tomatoes those spotted leaves, that black spot multiplying down those particular rows is something that the speaker feels in the way that uh, she doesn't feel the auditor does. You know, you were responsible for everything. You were in some sense provident and transcendent and above, and uh, beyond all of it, holding all of it accountable. But I was responsible for these fines. I tried to make them live and they died, and there was nothing that I could do about it. And that tragedy in itself is something 
something that is beyond the the mere calculus of accounting that is brought up at the beginning, anticipating return on investment. The, the, the tragedy of the loss and the failure of responsibility despite the best effort and, and the depth of love and attachment and attention for all of these reasons that were beyond the control of the speaker. That is something that is beyond just the did you make tomatoes or not. Well, and, and her insistence on her responsibility is simultaneously a self-condemnation. I'm responsible for these vines and they're dead. And a condemnation of the person she's talking to. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible for these vines, but your carelessness is what killed them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, but I mean, that brings us to a really interesting part of, of this poem. Because, yes, she's, she's grieving over these tomatoes that she's cared for and loved. And that have been blighted and, and have died. But the question has to be asked, do the tomatoes know she's there caring for them, heartbreaking <laughs> for them? Well, no. And and that should ask us, I think, to, to consider whether the big C creator in this poem is actually gone, as Galakin intimates at the beginning huh. of the poem. Or are we, like the tomatoes, simply blind to the attention to the love of our own creator? Are we all these blighted tomatoes cursing the gardener who we perceive has not done enough while the while that creator's heart breaks over us i i think that's a an interesting wavering and i think honestly the the fact that i mean this poem again is addressed to a you i i i can't help but noticing this and obviously the you is not us but by reading the poem we come to inhabit the place of that you to some extent Mm. and so when we see all of this railing against the creator is it something we're being asked to do to consider how does the you respond to this and i think i think maybe we're being asked to to you know to justify the ways of god to men a little bit uh, in milton's words maybe that's what's maybe that's what's expected of us to some extent i, I don't know it's, it's part of how i read this poem well, I have to correct you with my most hippie opinion, though, Matthew, which is that I do, I do believe plants have a sort of consciousness. Oh. <laughs> well. um, Maybe a topic for a future episode. I, d- I do think that's interesting that you're, you're both drawing out the way that this is kind of lateraled from a a parable of the talents or a, or a parable of the workers of the vineyard and has become... Uh, something that is more like Job um, or more like, uh, I don't know, the end of Jonah in which Jonah is incredibly upset about the death of the squash <laughs> or the gourd or, or, or whatever it is, the, the, that weird, that, that vine that he gets shade under. Um, there, there's, there's something um, – something defiant of you don't know what it hurts you don't know how it hurts to be here uh in this that says that 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 says that there's something more at stake in this whole exchange than just did you do your job did i get a return on the investment i made it's pretty cool Well, in uh, in Vita Nova, I am interested in a fragmented little stanza and a half in the middle. And I have to say, this is probably my favorite line from any of the Gluck poems I've read. Crucial sounds or gestures like a track laid down before the larger themes and then unused, buried. Uh, Matt, she's talking about childhood joy and adult despair. Uh, but what's she saying about them? Yeah, so I mean, these, these crucial sounds and gestures, I think, are, of course, referring back to these little snapshots of, of the past that she's been describing throughout the poem. And unless I'm very much mistaken, and, and please do correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I think there's an analogy here that's uh, going on, uh, comparing the poem to something that happens in a recording studio. Um, often when you record a song, artists and singers uh, will record their contributions to the song individually, um, But in order for everyone's recordings to line up with each other, you have to have this first track that everything else follows um, so that everything is recorded uh, to follow it and and they'll all match up at the end. 
it's the guide, as it were, the the track scratch that, track that sometimes gets called. Yeah, the track that's laid down first before the larger themes and instrumentation and vocalization can be added in. For the poet, that guiding track really seems to have been laid down that spring day long ago, um, where she experiences and tastes um, the, the joy of life, this joy that she uh, then anticipates will uh, be kind of this this base track that's going to underlie her whole life. Um, but now that she's grown, it's clear that the tracks which have been laid down since that track have ignored the pattern. They've They've ignored the beat to the tune set by the initial track. Um, it, it may have been left unused, uh, cut entirely from the final recording, or it's at least buried, perhaps drowned out by the other tracks. Um, it seemed so true in the beginning, so crucial in her words. It's, it's the crux around which the rest should hang. But her joy is withered in the face of, of uh, the, the quote-unquote real world. Um, her joy of life has been buried. And yet I think it's it's interesting because I don't think she's grown so cynical as to not mourn the death of childhood joy. She she laments her abandonment by it. And I think that's key to note. If this, this spring of childhood joy um, was a lover of sorts, if it wooed her to expect this joy as an underlying track of her future life, then it wasn't the poet who abandoned the relationship She's the one who feels abandoned. She wants to be remembered again by this one who saved her so long ago. And even now, I, I don't think the track is perhaps as buried as she might think, because she still feels its absence. And even though the spring, this this new spring brings her sorrow, um, even though it has become this messenger of death to her, she cannot help but feel that even this is still meant tenderly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, lo I love that it's unused, comma, buried. Uh, and when, when something's buried in the mix, it's still there. You know, and, and I, I suspect if you listen to a lot of um, if you if you got the stems, as they uh, as they say, of a lot of pop songs, you would hear underneath which you can't hear um, when everything is there. You would hear the scratch track there. And so it's like there's this false promise of joy she was given. This is the way your life is going to look. But it's not as though it, or perhaps it's not as though, because it's unused, comma, buried. It, it it might still be there, just underneath all the noise around it. And and that seems, um, that seems kind of tremendous to me. Mm. This is a poem about almost coming out of depression, right? It's It's a poem about being in despair for a long time. And then kind of seeing that there is a way out, even if she doesn't quite get there, even at the end of the poem. Mm -hmm. So th this this idea that there is underneath all of our despair, some sort of keynote of, of joy, a rhythm track of joy that that you can't hear. I, that really appeals to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the tragedy of the almost epiphany. Or right. the awakening that returns to sleep, or you know whatever uh, whatever other metaphor you give for it, um, the the light motif of a happy ending that doesn't pay off. But I, but I mean she does still feel the spring tenderly at the end. So I, right, I think yeah. it might be unconscious that she thinks it's gone, perhaps, but it's it's still there. Um, it's still influencing her and helping her to understand this in a loving way, in some way, even if it is a messenger of death. I mean, it's it's complicated. I guess that's a simple way to put it. You can hear it if you know what to listen for. Mm -hmm. If you listen to my band's records, you will no doubt hear somebody counting um, when there's a silence uh, with the drum stop. You will no doubt hear me or our drummer counting off if you listen closely in the background, because the scratch track is still there. Um but it's it's not audible until until you know you're looking for it, <clears throat> at least in theory. I don't know. Well, what else would you guys direct our listeners' attention to about these poems or about Gluck's other work that you're familiar with? Well, uh, 
the Meadowlands collection that I referred to earlier, that Circe's Power, the, the poem that I kind of met first, um, that, that the Meadowlands collection itself is um, exploring um, Trojan War and its aftermath generally, but particularly the story of Odysseus and the story of the the marriage that is Odysseus's and Penelope's. But also other voices like Circe are in there as well. Um, and I, I've got to say, I've got, I've got to say that that uh, I think encountering this poem made me pay attention to the other women in the Odyssey in a way that I hadn't necessarily before. Um, I don't know that uh, taking the poem Circe's Power and then sort of folding that back onto the Odyssey necessarily works as an interpretation of that character. Um, but the idea that these, uh, particularly not, not Circe, but Calypso definitely has a perspective of where she ought to be fitting in Odysseus's life. Um, that is something other than what Odysseus thinks and what the, the narrator or what the, uh, the narrative itself would have us, see is there but but is something that is nonetheless earnestly felt and expressed by that character um and so i i I appreciate the ways that um encountering poems from this collection um led me to to return to homer with a different kind of attention um she has a her collection um titled averno is um working variations of the demeter hades persephone myth um, which is, uh, also has some, some pretty cool, um, pretty cool stuff in it. I, I, I like the myth stuff <laughs> as you know, no one should be surprised by that, I guess. <laughs> what would you add, Matthew? Yeah. Um, I don't have, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I don't have a lot of exposure to Glick. Um, one, one thing I, I did want to talk a bit about more was the conversational aspect of her poetry. I mean, I, we've already talked about it a bit today, but I want to I want to highlight it again here. All of these poems and and much of Blake's other poetry I gather is spoken by an I addressing a you. And I think that style of poetry creates this sense of intimacy which Blake prizes. She doesn't want to be a poet performing for the world at large as if on a stage. But she doesn't want to be speaking just to herself as if writing a confessional diary. Instead, she wants to speak to a you. She wants to be found by individual readers who are connecting with what she has to say and and who can feel that they're engaging in this give and take personal encounter with the poet. Uh, In advance of this episode, I I took some time to read through Glick's uh, Nobel Prize lecture online, and it's, it's, it's quite a quick read. But uh, she she unpacks some of these ideas a little bit there. So speaking of her childhood interest in poetry, she writes, I was drawn then as now to the solitary human voice, raised in in lament or longing. And the poets I returned to as I grew older were the poets in whose work I played as the elected listener a crucial role. Intimate, seductive, often furtive or clandestine, not stadium poets, not poets talking to themselves. So Glick likes poems, she says, that invite the reader to make an essential contribution. Um, so when you read Glick's poetry, it's worth asking, what is the poet expecting of me? She she has this vision of the reader participating in her work, so we should read her work looking um, and expecting to participate. Interesting. Well, I certainly want to read more of her work now, and I hope our I hope our listeners have been uh, have been spurred on to do so as well. Uh, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or our website, which is christianhumanist.org. We're on Twitter at CH Radio Network. Next week we're going to be off because we have some scheduling issues around Holy Week. Uh, Matthew, what are we doing the week after that? Yeah, I think the week after that we're going to take a look at a few selections from the Sydney Psalter, uh, which is a metrical translation of the Psalms composed in the late 1500s. Philip Sydney began the project, uh, uh, but he only completed 43 Psalms before his death. So the vast majority were actually written by his sister, Mary. And uh, it's a project 
through which she gained significant literary renown. Um, I haven't exactly chosen which psalms we're going to be talking about, but we'll be focusing on the psalms written by Mary. I might throw in one of Phillips for comparison, or might not. I, I haven't really decided yet. David, hasn't Katie done some sort of extended work on the Sydney Psalter? Um, Am I making that up? She did some work with uh, Mary Sidney's eulogies for Philip Sidney after his death in her in her dissertation. Um, I don't remember she she might have she might have done some papers in grad schools about the Psalter. For some um, reason, I associate that with her. Maybe it's maybe it's because of Mary Sidney. Right. I don't, but I've never read it, so thank, this will be good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Well, um, until then, I'm Michael Farmer for David Grubbs and Matthew Block and the absent Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.